Good to see all of you present on this beautiful Sunday morning. What a great morning it has already been as we have opened our hearts and our minds, our lips, to praise our great God, our Father, our Creator, and to, in so doing, to encourage, to build up one another in our walk and in our faith with Him. If you are visiting with us this morning, we certainly are glad that you have chosen to come and to worship God with us. If you are visiting from the community and you are not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you are seeking to know Him, if you are visiting with us this morning and you are struggling spiritually, you are looking for answers that this world cannot provide to the problems and the difficulties that you are experiencing in your life, uh, I know that you have come to be with the right people this morning. And we only want to praise and glorify our God and help one another along in our walk with Him so that we can live a life that is pleasing to Him. Our, our worship this morning, just all three sessions that we've had so far, in my estimation, have just been excellent. And I told Brother Tim, I said, you, you need to plan these uh, song scripture prayer services more often because the thoughts that we had in that first hour this morning were just great. To sit here and to praise God for who He is and for what He does for us. And to sing those songs of praise and to read from God's Word and to offer such heartfelt prayers to our great God. And then to spend some time studying together intensively from His Word, the last session, and to do the same thing again in this hour. We certainly are blessed people, and we need to remember that. I hope that what I have to say this morning will not diminish that in any way. We have been on, at least I've been on such a spiritual high this morning already that I hope that I don't bring that down. But the things that we're going to discuss in our lesson this morning are not very pleasant. But unfortunately, they are the world in which we live. January the 22nd, 1973. June the 24th, 2022. These are two seemingly insignificant dates in our world's history and our nation's history. They just kind of seem to be random dates on the surface that are separated by about 50 years. On the former date, the date in 1973, the United States Supreme Court voted in the case of Roe v. Wade to make abortion legal throughout our nation. And on the latter date, June the 24th of last year, the U.S. Supreme Court, a different court made up of different justices, voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, thus making abortion no longer legal nationwide, but rather returning that decision about the legality of abortion to each state. But sadly, this latest ruling that just occurred a few months ago has not changed many people's views. It has not made this prevalent problem, this prevalent sin in our country magically disappear. 
As I was trying to find some updated information and statistics, there wasn't a whole lot, of course, just a few months ago, that decision being made. But I did find a a post-Supreme Court ruling from last year, a survey that was done by the Pew Research Institute, which if you know anything about them, I think does a really good job of giving us a lot of statistics about a whole lot of things in our country and our culture. But that survey post the latest Supreme Court ruling found that there were still 62% of U.S. adults that think that abortion should still be legal nationwide. 62%. In the years between those two dates in 1973 and 2002, and in the months since the most recent ruling, there have been a number of people, just a whole multitude of people that have voiced their views on this hot topic on one side or the other and everywhere in between. But I want to ask you in that intervening time and even in the months since the latest Supreme Court ruling, how many have truly spoken God's view? We've heard from a lot of views from a lot of different places. But how many have truly spoken the view of our Creator? Although I realize the word that we are speaking of this morning, the word abortion, does not appear in Scripture to my knowledge in any reliable translations, I believe that God certainly says something in His Word that relates to it. And He has some things to say in His Word that will help us to understand how He views it. And so in this second sermon in our current issue series this year, we want to think about this very unpleasant topic. But as we do so, we want to hear three messages from God that I believe will be worth our time to hear. They are the most valuable views, the most valuable messages I think that we could hear of any that are out there in our world today. The first message from God is the message that I value all life. As the creator of all that exists, God has given us as people, those who are made in his image and according to his likeness, he has given us life and he has given us that as a gift. I want you to go, if you have your Bible this morning, all the way, almost all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2 at verse 7, Genesis chapter 2 at verse 7, to notice something here that the writer says to us. He says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We're also reminded as the Apostle Paul was speaking to a group, many of whom seemed to be worldly philosophers in the city of Athens. In Acts chapter 17, he had an opportunity that probably very few, if any of us, would ever have in our lifetime as followers of Christ to speak to a group of people, a large group, it seems, at least in my mind, of those who were just worldly people, who were living like the world, who were living their life based upon the philosophy of the world, who, as Luke tells us here in this chapter, they spent their time just listening to things that were new. They were wanting to increase their knowledge base, if you will, but really not too concerned, it seems, about acting on that. But we know that the Apostle Paul spoke to them about Jehovah God, about the one who made everything. And notice what he said beginning at verse 24 here in Luke, uh, Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. I want you to notice here in these two passages, one from almost the beginning of Scripture and one as Scripture continues towards somewhat of the end of Scripture, that the point is being made to us here that God is the creator of all, that God is the giver of life, that God has given us as people, as human beings, made in His image this precious gift, the gift of life that it is in Him that we live and move and have our very being, that He has given us life and breath and all things. God, as we've already said this morning, made us as people in His image, which means that He made us to be a living being. And when He finished the crown of His creation, which is us, humanity, God saw all that He had made, and He said about all that He had made, all of creation, including the human race, that everything that He had made was not just good, but it was very good. We know that passage, don't we? In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And so if God did not value all life, much less value all human life, why would he describe it as being something that is not just good, but something that is very good? To what extent, though, does God value human life? Well, he values it so much that he requires a life for a life. If you're still there in the book of Genesis over in chapter 9, some instructions, some words that God spoke to Noah and his sons after the flood, after he had destroyed the world with water. And there was, a, in essence, a new world, if you want to look at it from that perspective. But he gives them some of the same instructions that he gave to Adam and Eve when he first created them back in chapter 1. As chapter 9 opens at verse 1, that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But then notice some other instructions when we come to verse 6. He said also to them, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man that he values human life so much that when someone decides that they are going to take a human life, that he requires the life of the one who took it. He values human life so much that he wants us as humans to continue to produce humans. Again, here in chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful, the instruction is, and multiply and fill the earth. I don't know how many people were living before the time of the flood. If you have had the opportunity to go to uh, visit the Creation Museum or the Ark uh, in northern Kentucky, we lived in, in E-Town, Kentucky, which was about two hours away from uh, both of, of those places. And, and you can see uh, some man's thinking, whoever put those uh, two places together about maybe kind of looking at some numbers and extrapolating how many people could have been on earth before the flood. I don't know that. God certainly knows. It could have been hundreds of thousands, millions. I don't know. But it comes down to after the flood, there are only eight human beings left on the earth. And God is giving this instruction that he wants humans to continue producing humans. God values human lives so much that he is a God who helps the helpless. You can see this all over Scripture. Just to give you a few examples of this, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is restating the law and reminding the people of God before he is about to die of what God has said. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and in verse 17, here is an instruction to his people Israel. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing, and so the instruction for them in verse 19 is you are to show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. The Psalms often captures this particular uh, special kind of love that God has, not just for all people, all of His creation, of course, but especially for those who are maybe helpless and cannot help themselves. In Psalm 10 at verse 12, beginning, here is what the psalmist says. Psalm 10 and verse 12, he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. And then over in Psalm 68, much the same sentiment, but perhaps said in a little bit different way. Psalm 68 and verse 5 beginning. Here the psalmist writes about God that he is a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. You will see this again over and over especially through the Psalms and especially through the Old Testament, that God shows a special concern for those who cannot help themselves. And so whether a person is born or unborn, whether a person is male or female, whether a person is light or dark-skinned, whether a person is young or middle-aged or older, the point is throughout Scripture that God values life. And as we're thinking of this morning in relation to us as people, God values all human life. The question has been raised, at least in my lifetime, and as I started out this sermon this morning with giving you those two dates, 1973 was before I was born. And so up until... June 24th of last year, that's all I have known from a legal standpoint from our nation's culture is that this particular sin is fine for people to practice. But it has been said and hotly debated over a number of decades about whether a child in a woman's womb is a born person, is a person or not. But if you wonder whether an unborn person is really a person, whether they are really a unique, an individual, a living human being or not, God, I believe in His Word, positively says yes to us. The passage that our brother Kerry read for us at the beginning of our assembly this morning from Psalm 139, the words of the psalmist David here. As he speaks, beginning at verse 13, he says about God, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know if our children remember this or not, but one of the houses, the first house we lived in in Kentucky, uh, Anna liked to get these uh, decals, I guess. I don't know exactly what they are called. Uh, sayings to put on the wall and in our children's room, I think in our son's room, 
was this particular verse. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. We wanted them to know that. We wanted to remind ourselves of that. But David says about himself here again at verse 14, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. I've read this passage many times as I'm sure you have. I've preached from this passage before, but it impressed me this past week as I was working on this lesson to just think about how many times David says my and me and I. Even before I was born, I'm a person that God has created. I think about the words of God to his prophet Jeremiah as Jeremiah was a young man, I don't know exactly how old when God called him to be a prophet to his people. But notice here in Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. God is saying, even before you came out of the womb, I knew you. I formed you. You, you were an individual. You were a person. A being, a human being made in my image. And so the first message I want all of us to hear this morning from our great creator is this, that God values life. And I believe these scriptures and others we could look at this morning are telling us that God values the life of an unborn baby. And so must we as well. The second message from God that we will consider this morning is almost the opposite of that, and that is the message that I hate all murder. If we go back to the passage that we were looking at just a few moments ago from Genesis chapter 9, as we have already read there at least a few verses, Genesis chapter 9, let's read verse 5 along with verse 6. Uh, again, God giving some instructions to Noah and to his sons as they are to go out and repopulate the earth once again. He said to them in verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. I believe this passage, God is giving a law in relation to murder. It is a law, notice, that God gave, yes, as we just said, specifically to Noah and his sons, but then by extension, I believe he was giving this instruction or law to all people. Notice that it was something that God spoke to Noah and his sons long before Moses came on the scene. Long before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and all the law that was specific to his chosen people, Israel. And in that in my mind, that means that what God is saying here, not only to Noah and his sons, but really to all of us, is to have a universal application. It is universal, I believe, in scope. It is applicable to all people for all time. But I want you to notice even more than that here at verse 7. Notice that God goes on to say, as you, uh, as you, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. What I was looking for is really the end of verse 6. Notice that this, this isn't just a, uh, an instruction that God pulls out of thin air from nowhere. 
But this is a law that is rooted in what we just spoke of in the previous point, the previous message from God. This is a law that is rooted in God's high value of life. And as we're thinking this morning in God's high value of human life and us being made in His image. There are several times throughout Scripture that this particular point is brought to our attention and this is one of them. Another one you might think of is in James chapter 3 when he is talking to us about our tongue and the power of our tongue. And he's telling us it is very inconsistent. It's hypocritical for us to bless God with our tongue and then to turn around and to curse our fellow human being, whether it's our husband or wife or our children or our parents or our brother or sister in Christ or the person that we work with or the person that lives beside us in the neighborhood because that person has been made in the image of God. And that ought to mean something as to how we treat them. God's law, I believe, again here in Genesis chapter 9, is very clear that if you take a life, including the life of an unborn baby, that you give a life your own. You know, if human life isn't valuable, if human life can just be discarded and disposed of at will, then why does God give this instruction here, not just to Noah and his sons, not just to those who would be his chosen people, Israel, that would come after him, not just to us as Christians, but I believe this applies to everyone. Why does God give this universal law concerning the consequences of taking a human life? Scripture, I believe, is very clear that God hates Yes, he abhors murder, especially murder of the innocent, of the helpless in those few passages that we've already considered this morning, especially from Psalms, that is something that is an abomination to him. I want you to go to the book of Proverbs for just a moment. The book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 6, there is a list that the Proverbs writer gives us here of some things that God hates. Yes, things that he abhors. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. The writer says to us here, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife. Among brothers. At first glance, we might think about this list like we think about a lot of lists in Scripture. Well, it's just kind of a hodgepodge. <laughs> you just kind of have a potluck, if you will, of all kinds of things that God hates, and there really seems to be no connection to them. But I would say that there is a connection between several of these things, and there is a connection, I believe, to be made in the topic that we are thinking about today. Abortion certainly is shedding innocent blood. But it can also be connected to having haughty eyes. It can be connected to a lying tongue. It can be connected to a heart that devises evil plans. It can be connected to feet that are, run rap- that are running rapidly to evil. It can be connected to a false witness who is uttering lies. And the Proverbs writer is very clear that these are things, yes, not just that God hates, But these are things that are detestable to God. These are things that are sickening to Him. How strongly does God hate the murder of any person, much less an innocent, unborn person? Well, He hates it so much that as He spoke through His prophet Isaiah to His people of old, 
he reminded them because of many sins that they were involved in that he would not hear their prayers or accept their worship if they were guilty of those things. In Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, notice what God says to his people. He says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. I realize as you look at the prophets, as you read several different genres of scripture, that there could just be a picture that is being painted for us here. But as you continue on down, we're not going to take the time to read it. But if you want to read like verses 21, 22, 23, again, some things that we read about. Maybe this, this passage, looking at it from the negative side, some things we read about on the positive side from the Psalms about God taking care of the widow and the orphan, the alien, the stranger, the ones who couldn't help themselves and instructing and encouraging and urging his children to do the same. But it was because, yes, they were involved in idolatry. Yes, they were involved in all kinds of sins. But he says here at the end of verse 15 that your hands are covered with blood. Yes, they had sinned against God. They had not shown justice. They had not shown mercy. They had not shown kindness. And I believe that what he is stating here could apply to what we're discussing today. We need to remember that abortion is not an accidental death. It is an intentional choice by a living human being to end the life of a human being that is not yet born. And therefore, I think God is very clear in his word that this is something that is evil, something that is sin. We're not going to take the time this morning to look at all of these passages. I've put them here on the screen. You can write them down and you can uh, read them at a later date and think about them in more detail if you want to. But basically, these three texts and maybe some others tell us that under the law of Moses, God made a very clear distinction between murder and manslaughter. And I'm not a lawyer. We have a few, at least one lawyer here in the audience this morning, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our legal code in this country still does make a distinction between murder and manslaughter. Something that is intentional and something that is accidental. And so someone who murders someone else, they have that in their mind. That is an intentional thing that they're going to end that person's life, but then there is times there are times when that is an accident. And some of these scriptures talk to us about that, like two men that are out in the woods chopping wood with an axe and the axe head flies off of the handle and it hits his friend in the head and he dies. And there was no ill intent. There was he wasn't even thinking about that. There was no premeditation as that particular term is often connected to murder in our legal code today. It's just something that was accidental. And he punished, God did in these passages that I have here on the screen, he punished the former action by death. He said if someone had the intent to kill, to murder another person, that he should die, but in his mercy and grace, because God is concerned about intent, he set it up that there would be these cities of refuge. You probably remember those passages that the manslaughter could flee to those cities of refuge. And as long as he stayed in those cities, he was safe from the avenger of blood. 
And why did God give all of those laws? Why did he make a distinction between murder and manslaughter? Well, it is, among other things, because of this point that we're making here, that God hates all murder. Yes, I believe he hates the murder of unborn babies. And so must we. But the third and final message that we want to hear from God along these lines is God saying to us that he demands that all people would take action. I don't know the background of everybody in this audience this morning. We have all certainly sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it may be the case that there is a person in this audience who is guilty of this particular sin. For, for a person that has had an abortion or even for one who is in the medical field, maybe or not in the medical field, that has helped someone to perform this particular act. God demands confession and God demands repentance of that particular sin. If you go back to the passage we were just at in Isaiah chapter 1, the words of God to his people through his prophet Isaiah don't end there. But notice verse 16 beginning, he says, wash yourselves. Clean, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. He's saying there's some action that you need to take. Yes, you are guilty that you have blood on your hands, whether that is to be taken literally or figuratively because of their sin. But he says there's some action that you need to take. That you need to wash yourselves. You need to make yourselves clean. You need to put away this evil from my sight and from your sight. But that's not enough. You need to learn to do good. You need to devote yourself to living like a true child of mine. When a person, of course, acknowledges and turns from whatever sin they are guilty of, we have the promise given to us in passages like 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that we have Jesus Christ as our advocate when we do sin. That the Apostle John was writing to those Christians and to us and saying, I hope it's not your desire to sin, but the reality of it is as we live in this sin-cursed world that we're going to be tempted from time to time and we're going to give in to those temptations in a moment of weakness and we are going to sin against our Creator and God has made provision for that, that God will not just say, I will forgive a little bit of what you have done, but God will say, I will fully forgive you. And so we need to realize that whatever sin we may have, have not confessed or turned away from in our life, we need to remember the promise of God that God will fully forgive. The Apostle Paul, as one of our brothers mentioned in one of the prayers in our 9 o'clock session this morning, I think it was Brother Lance, about the great example that Paul even says about himself of God's mercy and grace and patience. He was a murderer, folks. Paul was. And yet God fully forgave him. And so God can fully forgive someone who has been guilty of this particular sin that we're speaking of this morning. For a person that may be in a point in your life where you're contemplating an abortion, God demands loving all people, including an unborn child, more than you love yourself. 
The golden rule, as we often speak of it in the great mountain message in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, that we need to do to other people as we want them to do to us. We need to remember that particular truth and apply it in every area of our life and apply it to what we're speaking of this morning. You, of course, probably remember, as I have here on the screen from Matthew 22, the conversation, the question that the lawyer came and asked Jesus, what's the great commandment of all in God's law? I don't know what he was expecting Jesus to say. (laughs) But you remember the second greatest, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that includes even those who are not born yet. For those of us who are trying to be God's people in this age, in this culture in which we live, and we are trying, we are taking the message of passages like Proverbs 6 to heart and Those things, those sins that are mentioned there disgust us. And we hate them and they're an abomination to us just as much as they are to God. God demands of us, His people, that we show justice, that we show mercy, that we show kindness, that we show humility toward those who are guilty of this sin or any sin. Again, from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 17, He says we need to learn to do good. We need to seek justice, yes. We need to reprove the ruthless. We need to defend the orphan. We need to plead for the widow, I'm reminded of the prophet Micah and what he says about why, why are we here? <laughs> what does God require of us? What is God looking for you and I? He makes it very simple to us in that text, doesn't he? That he wants us to love justice, to seek mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And I believe a part of doing that is, to, is how we interact with other people around us. Yes, even sinners. Now, I'm not suggesting here as we say that God demands that we show justice, even as he says here to us or to the people of old in verse 17 of Isaiah 1, that they needed to seek justice, that they needed to reprove the ruthless, they needed to defend the orphan. I don't believe God was saying through his prophet Isaiah here or anywhere else in his word that because we are his children, because we hate this sin that we're speaking of this morning, because it is an abomination, a, a disgusting thing to us, that we just take justice into our own hands, as some people have been want to do in our culture over the last number of decades, those who claim to be, quote, Christians. And I think in so doing, they have given all of us a a bad name, a bad reputation. Because we can't just say, well, because this sin is going on in our country today that we ought to go out and we ought to take the life of someone who is a doctor who performs an abortion or we ought to go into a a clinic that performs this procedure and we ought to bomb that clinic to oblivion. We need to leave those matters in God's hands. That's not the right way for us to respond to it. But we still must be people who are seeking justice and showing mercy and showing kindness with all humility toward those who may be involved in this particular prevalent sin. While we cannot bring a dead baby back to life, we can show God's love for people who are contemplating committing this sin by having a heart for adoption. And fortunately, in the time in which we live, there are a number of Christians, I think, who have come to this realization that this really is to be our work, at least a part of our work. And I know that there are several families here in this congregation who have 
adopted children, and that is certainly a wonderful thing. But you may be thinking to yourself, well, maybe you're, you're just an older couple and your children left the house decades ago and you're thinking, <laughs> kind of like Sarah and Abraham, I, I'm past that time. You can still be supportive of that kind of work by donating money, by donating your possessions, by giving of your time to maybe couples or families that are wanting to adopt. There, there is, I know there's a lot of good organizations, but there's an organization that was started a number of years ago, I think about 15 years ago by Christians in California that now live in the Nashville area called Sacred Selections. And they have fundraisers all over this country. And we have been blessed financially, at least in the last few years, to attend several of those and uh, to donate some of our funds that God has given us to help in that process. My wife, Anna, if any of you know her very well, she loves to knit and crochet. And she's crocheted a number of blankets that have been auctioned off for hundreds and hundreds of dollars to provide for children, for families who are wanting to adopt. I don't believe it is good enough for us, brothers and sisters, to just say that we are opposed to something that God is opposed to and not be willing to put our money where our mouth is and to stand up for those precious children. When there is sin in the camp, as it were, God demands that we take action. And so must we. Although there certainly, I believe, are more messages that God speaks in relation to this sin that we are speaking of this morning. I hope that you will take all three of these messages from God to heart. That you will think seriously and deeply about them. That you will pray about them. That you, in, in whatever capacity, whatever ability you have, that you will teach these messages to others. That our God is a God of life. He values life. May God help us to see this sin as He does. Because it's so easy for those of us who are trying to be children of God to be influenced in our thinking. Our brother John spoke to us about that this morning in our adult class out here in the auditorium. And to just think, well, you know, everybody accepts this particular thing and so it's fine. But we need to view things the way that God views them. This hasn't been a pleasant lesson by, by any means. But I think it's one that we need to hear from time to time. What about you this morning? God does not desire that you would die spiritually. And his desire is so strong that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into this world so that we, as our brother Drew reminded us this morning, we might have life. Do you really have life? I mean, what is true life? You can have that this morning. You can start your journey with God. Think about your need for Him. And if you have a need that you need to make known to the congregation this morning, whether it's your desire to become a follower of His Son, Jesus Christ, whether as a Christian you need to turn away from sin in your life and you need to 
let that be known to all of us and you need help and encouragement and strength in doing that. Whatever your need might be as we think, as we sing about the greatest commands to love one another. I hope that your spirit, your heart will be touched and moved and you will make your way to the front and we can be of help to you. However you need to respond to the invitation, if you need to do that now, won't you do that as we stand and as we sing?